0: Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made whole, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, In Lycoming, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things into a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from the heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained themselves from offering sacrifices to the people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thanks, Shirley. I know it's tough. Some words in there. Well, we've been going through the book of Acts. If you don't know, if this is your first time, uh, the best way we feel like to teach the Bible is just to go through it verse by verse. We'll take breaks occasionally and and do something different. But honestly, what you're going to get as the bread and butter here is going through books in the Bible. And we're uh, about halfway through the book of Acts. Uh, Actually, today is our halfway point. So we're going to go through this. I'm going to start in verse one. Shirley came up and started in verse eight, because that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. But verses one through four are kind of a synopsis and summary of of how we got where we are. Before I do that, though, I want to start with somewhere that may feel a little bit like it's coming from left field, and it's this idea. Um, We have to have a baseline in understanding what the book of Acts is doing and that God is on mission continuing to write wrong beliefs about God, meaning... um, Honestly, there's maybe 100, 150 people right here in this room, and we, for the most part, everyone would call themselves Christian. Maybe you don't, but for the most part, we'd call ourselves Christian. That's why you're coming to church. And even in this room, if you were to get to the nitty-gritty, the minutia of all of the Christian faith, it would be hard-pressed to find five of us that would agree exactly. Okay, And that's we're all considering ourselves Christian. Now, broad strokes, I don't think there's going to be any debate. But even in the minutia of how we get in playing out the details of it all, there's going to be differences of how we view God. Now, the reason I bring this up and the reason it is important is... Because I think when you begin to talk with someone about how they view God and how you view God and how you're trying to get to a right belief of God, I honestly don't think the best step to take in talking about that topic is going, well, what do you think about God? And well, what do I think about God? I I don't think that's the best way to do it. And to be honest, I know this sounds crazy, so give me grace to explain. I don't think the best way to do it is to go to the Bible and go, well, what does the Bible say about God? Now, the reason I don't think that's the case is because there's this fancy $10 word called an epistemology. We have an epistemology, a, a, a way that we learn things, okay? And I think a better way to start is go to the Bible and ask the Bible, what does the Bible say about us? Because what the Bible would speak about us into understanding our epistemology is that our epistemology, the way that we learn, it's broken, okay? And if the way that we learn is broken, our understanding naturally of God is going to be broken, right? This is Calvin's famous quote that 40% of what I know to be true is incorrect. The problem is I don't know what 40%. So we continue to pursue the Lord and we have all these, these inconsistencies or we have wrong belief and we don't intentionally want to get there. We're zealous to have the right belief for God, but we have wrong belief in certain areas. And so what we do is understanding and having a right view with God is going to scripture and trying to hash this out. And that is what the whole mission of Acts is. Everywhere that you go, you follow Peter, you follow Philip, you follow Paul and Barnabas, wherever they're going, they're going into areas and they're making right views of God sustainable in that region. Now, up to this point, we we need to understand that across the board, every person that has ever lived falls into two categories. I know it sounds super oversimplified, and I don't mean just male, female categories. I mean, it falls into two categories. There are either scriptural people or there are non-scriptural people. Now, what I mean by that is, I'm not just saying there are Christian people and non Christians or believers and non believers. The reason I would broaden it a little bit more is because Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, Jews, and Christians, we all have the same baseline. So if I go to a Jehovah's Witness, my, my, my family's Jehovah's Witness, and I begin to, to argue, and we're going through the scriptures, one thing I find out immediately is, though they claim the scriptures, they're scriptural people, they actually hold to a different scripture. The New World Translation is not the same Bible that I would read out of. They've actually translated their Bible based on their belief, okay? This is, believe me, I grew up in this stuff. Now, there's a whole nother section of non-scriptural people who would say, that I don't care what the Bible says. That's not my baseline. So we have a crowd of people who can argue right belief in God based on Scripture, and we can go and go at it over and over. And then there's this whole other way of going, well, how do we have right belief of God if we don't even have the same baseline? And up to this point, all we have met as the gospel has moved in its mission is scriptural people. And so maybe you're in here, and you know that, right? You, you, you know that up to this point, we have met Jews. We have met a people that understand the Old Testament the way that we would understand the Old Testament Except they don't. They, they have the text the way that we do, but they end at the wrong belief of God. And Paul and Barnabas have gone from city to city. Peter going from place to place and going, you have this view of God. We're a scriptural people. Let me show you in scripture why you, you are believing wrong and why this is the right way. That's what we've done. And today, we're going to see the gospel hit for the first time in the book of Acts, a non-scriptural people. Okay? So let's do this. Verse 1. Let's catch up as to where we are and, um, and understand in what I just said. I think there's something important that that's not just me making this up. A big part of Matthew 28, 20, we know Matthew 20, 19, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20 says what? Teaching them, teaching them all that, that I have commanded you as he talks to the apostles. So there is a right belief to teach people. And that is what uh, Paul and Barnabas are doing. I just thought that was worth saying. So uh, verse one Says this, uh, uh, I'm going to read the, get through the first uh, couple of verses and then we'll, we'll pick it up at verse eight in a minute. Now in Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So maybe you have no idea where we are. You're just entering in a story. Let me catch you up as to where we're going. Um, as the gospel is growing, this guy named Paul introduced to Jesus, him and Barnabas team up and let me show you a map. I'm going to put a map on the screen for you. Um, John's going to put it up. Um, as, as you look at this map, there's a church uh, called uh, Antioch that we, we were introduced to that is essentially doing a lot of things right. They get the whole race thing. They get the whole scripture being the, the most important thing. They're, they're in uh, uh, a continuity with one another, understanding that it's about his kingdom. They're witnessing their on mission. So what this church does, that little star in Antioch, the far right Antioch, is they send Paul and Barnabas out on Paul's first missionary journey. And what we are introduced to as we've been going through chapters, chapters, They they, they, uh, hit Cyprus, this island there, and then what we saw last week is they go up to Perga and to another Antioch, that's the original Antioch actually, and they go into this area and they go into synagogues. They go to a scriptural people, and as they go in, the the Gentiles there, non-Jews, hear what they're saying and they go, this is amazing, let's go get our friends and family. They do another service and the Jews begin to get jealous because everyone's listening to Paul and Barnabas. So they end up fleeing that place, and what we're going to find out today, you can just put all the arrows up, it'll be nice and confusing for everyone. What we're going to see here is they're going to go from Antioch, go ahead and throw them all up there, uh, to Iconium, to Derby, to Lestrea, right, and the circle back. There's i I don't know, who knows what they do at that point. They're going to go all the way around to Attilia back to Antioch. So we're going to finish Paul's first missionary journey. It's going to go full circle. Now, In this area, the areas that we're going into is less scriptural people. It's less Jewish influence, okay? But we're not done from Antioch. We're going to go to uh, Iconium here now, and that's where they are. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogues, they being Paul and Barnabas, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. So we have the same exact thing that we saw last week. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. That word poison in Greek means abused. Like, like, so here Paul and Barnabas is, they're trying to share the faith and the Jews don't like what they're saying. And so they go around and go, well, what they're saying, that's wrong. And they begin to abuse them. And the reason that word is so important is because it, it, it speaks of intentionality. They're not just accidentally saying the wrong thing. They're intentionally just pushing against Paul, right or wrong. they they're, they're poisoning the minds of these believers in that city. Okay, and so Paul and Barnabas, because of that, they remain. They go, man, what the Jews are doing to these people, it's not okay. We're going to stay here and disciple these people. So they remain for a long time, a long period of time. He sums up, it's it's a couple months, what we know historically, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So here's Paul and Barnabas on behalf of the Lord, as we saw speaking boldly for the Lord. They go on, verse four, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When attempt was made, when, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lestrea and Derby, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So here they are in this area. They drop down. The cities divided. Jew and Gentiles are. They're figuring out: is this gospel thing real? The rulers in that area don't like it. Again, what, maybe they're jealous. We don't know, but it could be the same as ver- uh, chapter 13. They decide they're going to kill them, execute, execute them through stoning them. And so they flee. And when they flee, they land in where the main part of our uh, passage is in verse 8. Now, here's what I want you to catch before we pick up in verse 8. Whatever Paul and Barnabas are doing, man, they got the, the, the fires of hell behind them. I mean, this isn't just they're waking up and going, what do you want to do this, today? I know. Let's go to a city and almost be executed because it sounds fun. They're they're, they're not not just willy-nilly traveling around intentionally. They have decided to give their life to make right belief of God. To take this mission everywhere they go and it's good news and they want to bring it. It is what is Driving them. This is good news. On on uh, Thursday or Friday, I went with uh, some people to um, Fossil Creek. It's uh, out by Camp Verde. If you've ever been, it's beautiful, right? And I've never been before. But you, we've where we parked, we've got to walk a couple miles to get to this waterfall that you're jumping off of. It feels like another planet. The reality is, right? So we're going to go in two more weeks. We're going to go with the Washburns because it was so awesome. But let me explain something. We're not going back to Fossil Creek so that we can walk the two miles and like throw sand at each other. There's something that's driving that hike, something that's driving that walk and it's crystal clear waters. It feels like another planet. It's refreshment. And Paul and Barnabas in this moment are being driven by something that matters. What we're talking about today matters. Right belief in who God is, no matter how zealous you are in the other direction, matters so much so that Paul and Barnabas are willing to give their life For this cause. So here they are. They eventually make it into Lestrea. Now, at Lestrea, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in uh, uh, Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, Um, We're going to need to get some context here because a lot of this doesn't make sense. Paul and Barnabas go into a city. They're preaching the same gospel, but this time to a non-scriptural people. Paul sees a lame man whose feet have been paralyzed from birth. He, He tells him to stand up and walk by the power of Jesus Christ. He stands up and walk, and everyone sees what's going on, and they lose their mind. And what they do is they begin to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, and here's why. 50 years prior, there was this tale that was told about the district there, that um, at one point, Zeus, who was the one who created people in Greek mythology, and Hermes, his son, um, came down to earth in this district, and they took on human form. And when they took on human form, they tried to find residence and find a place to stay, but no one in the city wanted them, right? This, you can almost hear similarities to the story of Jesus in this, but no one in the, the city wanted them. There was this guy named Philemon and his wife end up taking them in, okay? So this, this man, Philemon and wife, take in. Zeus and Hermes, who are in human form, they don't know who they are. They end up calling Jupiter and Mercury later. Some Greek mythology, 101 for us. But, but here they are in this city. Now, here's the thing about Philemon. He's completely broke. He has this little hut they live in. And, and what uh, Zeus and Hermes see in this is they're super upset, as the tale goes, because the rest of the city has all these things. But here, these peasants take them in, completely deplete their resources. And so they, quite literally, wipe out the population and take this little hut of leman and his wife and make it this huge palace and say, you're in charge here. And that's the tale. Now, to them, everyone knows this. and, and, and I don't mean, So we're talking 50 years prior. And the best example I can come up with, which I came up in, in first service, was think about us going to the moon. So 1969, almost 50 years prior um, up to where we are now, you may not know all the details, maybe some Armstrong guy and all that. You don't know the other two guys. But for the most part, if someone who is from... Mars came in and said hey has America ever made it to the moon you would be able to say yes we made it to the moon there's Neil Armstrong maybe maybe you know a little more about the details but you would know that story these people it's not that far removed they know this story they're super familiar with it so when they see Paul and Barnabas heal a man they lose their mind because they go we're not making the same mistake again And so immediately they call Hermes Paul because he's the speaker. Hermes is the god of commerce. He's the one who interacts between the gods and and the people. Paul, Hermes, and and, uh, Barnabas, Zeus. And so they begin to bring bowls. They bring uh, all kinds of goods and sacrifice it to Paul and Barnabas. Okay, So that's kind of our context is what's going on. Paul obviously is having none of it because this is how he responds in uh, verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, hear this, men, why are you doing these things? So this is the climax of our story. Like, this is um, a worldview, the way that these people view the world and God, immediately rushing up against what Paul and Barnabas are trying to bring in a right belief in God. And, and, and Paul and Barnabas, they tear their clothes as a sign of this is not okay. And they go, why are you doing this? Why? Now, the reason I stopped there and didn't continue to read what he said, which we'll get to in a second, um, I want to just share something just personally, because there, there's times where I, I, I feel, and I don't know how the other elders feel, there's moments where I feel kind of like a one-trick pony, man. I feel like over and over, not just in counseling or meetings or whatever, but on the stage, there's moments where I get up and it's the same song and dance, there are false idols, there is sin, it's killing you, turn to Jesus. There are false idols, there's sin, it's killing you, turn to Jesus. Over and over. And, and you can only get so creative in doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yet the Bible tells us to do this. And, and hear me, like, I get it. Like, you want that spouse that you're willing to, like, compromise, that desire of zeal. And hear me, it's an idol, there's sin, there's sin turn to Jesus. Like that job, or or maybe wanting to have children, like, or, or you think just flirting a little bit is okay. Hear me when I say this over and over and over again. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Stop. But he doesn't stop there. This is what he says. We also are men of like nature with you. So he's very intentionally speaking to what their idol of sin in this is in this moment. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all human nations to walk in their own ways. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So Paul is seeing what's going on. He's going, why are you doing this? And then he does what we've been called to do, right? He goes, I'm not just telling you to stop doing something. I'm telling you to change the way you think of God. I'm telling you the way you view the heavenly realms is wrong. And now this clash in this moment of Paul and Barnabas presenting this idea of going, you view God wrongly. And I'm here to tell you the good news, the euangelion, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have something different. There is a different narrative that you need to hear me tell you right now because what you're doing is wrong. I remember I got saved later in uh, life and I remember being 16 years old, so not too much later, but at least in high school. And I remember very specifically um, changing my worldview, recognizing this passage like like just hit me so hard because understanding... um, all the way that I, I can try to play out my life up to that point was was completely different. And, and it was a moment specifically when I was sitting there, if you don't know, my parents did drugs and one of my dad's drug addict buddies was there. He's talking all fast and he made a statement. He said, "Yeah, you know, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I remember like up to that point, as a 16 year old, everything's kind of going through my mind. I absolutely agree with him because like whether it's the cliches of wanting to be famous or wanting riches, I'm gonna have the big house, I'm gonna make it out of the hood or whatever it is, all these silly things. I heard that, and, and I immediately go, I agree. It's not what you know. It's who you know. But I knew in my mind we're not on the same page at all because I, I knew Jesus. So I thought to myself, and I didn't say anything because he was on drugs. Um, it was like, it's, I was like, you're right. You're right. It's not what you know. It's who you know. I, and, and my worldview, what the gospel did is said you believe something that's wrong. You're following wrong things. Now, what Paul does in this moment and how he beautifully, tactfully goes at these false idols, these people who are non-scriptural people, you need to hear because I think it speaks to the depths of where we are sometimes as even Christians. The first thing that I want you to notice that he does, as, as we're going to read here, look at verse, uh, um, let's pick it up in verse 15. Men, why are you doing this like nature? We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. The Greek word is matiaos. It's, it's a word that... Um, intentionally when I was looking up uh, the definition because it's used and in, 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 uh, formed in such a way that it emphasizes purposelessness. Well, what he's saying in this moment is you're following and we think of vain as like vanity, like, like appearance, but that's not what Paul's doing. He's looking at him going, this is, this is shallow. What you're pursuing right now is without purpose. So if you can, Go back far enough. If you weren't saved in church, you got saved later in life. Remember the moment when you didn't know Jesus and calculate how purposeful was that? And what Paul is looking at going, listen, you can have the job to what end? So so, so you can have the house and you can have the spouse and you can have the children and you can have the mouse. I just wanted to rhyme with spouse and house. Okay. You can have all these things. So here's the big question that I think sometimes um, as Christians, we let flutter away for what? Now, maybe those are obvious vain things. Hear me when I say this. You really like doing a certain career. You really love your job. And so you find a career. And because, man, I'm doing something that makes me happy. I'm married to someone that makes me happy. Uh, I have kids that I love, a house that makes me happy. What's the problem? And I, I'm asking you in this moment, to what end? Like, why is that the end? And and what Paul and Barnabas in this moment are doing is they're saying, what I'm putting in front of you, the things that you're pursuing, they're purposeless. Why is happiness the goal? Why? He's making them, he's stretching that out and going, you're following these vain things, these dead things that lead nowhere. And then the second thing, he takes that idea and he goes, what I'm trying to put in front of you is to not just stop following these vain things, these lifeless things, but to follow the living God. Now, here's how, um, the best way I can explain it. I've given this example before. If, if you know me, um, and you've been to my house before, you know I love building. Um, so I'm building tree houses, which we didn't have a tree, so I had to build a tree first. Tree houses, and decks, and chicken coops, and, and flower beds. So maybe some of you work with your hands, and so you want to rest with your minds. I work with my mind. My job requires I work with my mind, and so I rest with my hands. It's uh, decompressing for me to go home and be able to work on a project. And I love doing it. But here's the curse of marrying Candace Myers, Candace Craig at the time. Her father is a contractor. Okay. So no matter what I build, I build like a playhouse for kids. He builds a house for real people. Right. So, so he's building a house for grownups. Right. So I'm like, look at my tree house. And he's going, that house is seven bedrooms. Okay. You just built a bathroom in my house. That's all you did. Okay. Now, if I was to walk on a scene, so he's a, he's a, a Joseph Craig is a master of his craft. If he, if I was to walk on the scene, one of his job sites, he knows it so well that he's overseeing the people who are actually doing the work. And as he does this, um, I walk in and I go, dude, is that, is that the hammer? He's like, the what hammer? I'm like, is this the hammer you've been using? He's like, yeah, that's my hammer. I had a nail and some nails over there. W- wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. So this is the hammer. And I pick it up. I'm like, this hammer built this house. And he's like, well, and I don't even let him finish. And I go, dude, can I have this hammer? And he's like, I let you marry my daughter. Why? Okay? And so, so I take this hammer, and I bring it to you guys on a Sunday, and I go, you guys, this is the hammer that builds houses, right? No. No. In this moment, what, what, what we have to recognize is, the cliche, is a tool's only good as the one who's holding it. And what Paul is telling them, saying, turn away from this hammer and turn to the one who made that hammer. You're, you're worshiping these things that are vanity, that are purposeless, that lead you nowhere. And I'm telling you, I'm offering you something that goes to the depths of purpose at their core. It's, it's finding you exactly where you are so you have purpose in everything that you do. Turn to the living God, but he doesn't in there. Here's a beauty in what he is saying. He's not just offering you in this moment to turn from a dead thing to a living thing. He's telling you if you would turn to this living thing from this dead thing, everything you're searching in the dead thing would actually be fulfilled in this living thing. So you think that being alone with him or her in that room and doing whatever you want, as I have many times, is going to fulfill your purpose. To have that office flirt or to take whatever this extra money, whatever it is, it's going to to bring you joy. It's going to bring you happiness. And what Paul and Barnabas are saying, that's vanity. It's worthless. It's pointless. It's shallow. It's purposeless. But what I am telling you is this has purpose and not only does it have purpose, it actually fulfills what you're looking for in the dead things. Now, maybe you don't believe me. So look at this. Look at verse 17. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. So now he's talking about the witness of all that he is um, uh, prior to them hearing this word. For he did good. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So he goes, listen, up to this point, that Chipotle burrito that you enjoyed, it, it filled you. And it was good, right? But then you were hungry again. And what that Chipotle burrito was supposed to do, I'm using the analogy, I'm going to go with it, I'm already this deep, okay? What the Chipotle burrito was supposed to do was make you go, wow, someone cares enough to give me a burrito, even though 100,000 people will go without food today. That, that burrito was meant to cause you to look towards the contractor and stop looking at the hammer but you've missed it. You've been following purposeless things. Now, how he continues to play this out is he doesn't just satisfy the purpose that they're looking for, but hear this. He satisfies your heart. I know you want the spouse. I know you want the kids, the job, but even if you had them without the underlining foundation of the God of the Bible, it's purposeless. Now, I don't have enough life experience to like share with you how I know this to be true, but um, I've read a great many of men who've said it to be so, some who are Christian and some who are not, one of which is a guy named Johnny Cash. If you don't know who Johnny Cash is, for four decades, this dude has spanned as an artist just meleeing people with some crazy music. Maybe you've heard songs like Ring of Fire or whatever it is. Well, He has a museum in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and um, I've never been before, but If you go into this museum, everything I've read about it is it goes through this guy's popularity, his wealth, um, everything that he's had. And if there's a pinnacle, a Solomon in our day, here's Johnny Cash, who's had everything that you're looking for. He's obtained those things. The women, the, the, the popularity, the prestige, he's obtained all those things. So much so that he has a museum about himself. Okay? So even if you think you find the fulfillment in these things, you're probably ain't having a museum about how much you've found the fulfillment on those things. This dude has a museum about himself. And as you go through the museum, you make it to the end, and what you find is the last song that Johnny Cash ever recorded on video. It's a song, Hurt. And it's meant to, purposely, per his request, sum up all of his past achievements. And this is what he says, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the song, it says this, What have I become my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you could have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. If I could start again a million miles away, I would keep myself. I would find a way. So even one of the most popular men in the last hundred years, having all of these things, you know what he says? It's an empire of dirt. You can have it. You can have it. Men after men, women after women over and over before us who've obtained all these things. Jim Carrey even saying, I wish everyone could be rich so that everyone would know it doesn't bring you happiness. All we see again and again is the same lie that we buy into. And Paul and Barnabas are pleading with them, stop. Why are you doing this? Turn to the living God. Unfortunately, in verse 18, we find the response of the people, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. They continue to pursue this thing over and over and over again. I don't have the quote on the screen for you, but let me read something from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says this, when Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, Adam and Eve, what he put in their heads was the idea that they could be like God's. They could set up their their own as if they had creation themselves. They could be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. The reason why it could never succeed is this. God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car with a gas engine is made to run on gas, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other and that is why uh, it is just no, no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about his religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from him because it is not there. There is no such thing. Hear this last line. This is the key to history. If everyone knew this, they would stop pursuing these things, and they would pursue the living God, and they would find the satisfaction of their heart. But they don't respond, and so this is what Paul and Barnabas do. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, so they, the Jews that they were uh, dealing with before now travel down to the area, and persuade the, crowds that they, uh, persuade the crowds, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples, they returned to Lestria and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that, I wish I can preach on this line alone, through many tribulations, we are to enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord and in whom they had believed. So let's go back to Paul and Barnabas because here's this alternate narrative, this other way of believing about God. And Paul and Barnabas care so much about the right view of God. It's driving them. That at some point, Paul and Barnabas, Paul specifically gets tries to get executed, stoned to death. He's thought to be dead. It's so bad. They drag him out the city. More more likely than not, the disciples gather around him and pray for him. And the dude, just like legit soldier for Christ, just stands right back up and goes, well, here we go. And he goes back and brings the gospel because he's not done. But it's not done there. As he continues to go from from city to city, he ain't taking an airplane, he ain't taking a car, he's walking. Okay. He was just almost killed, left for dead. He gets up and he's still walking. When I say walking, some 36 miles. Walking. What is driving this to the point where he tells these disciples that it's through trials that we are to enter the kingdom of God? What is fueling this? What is fueling this? And hear me, it's this. And if you call yourself a believer, then you've got some big questions to wrestle through, if this is not it, here we find ourselves—that that there is alternate narratives. There are other views of God out there. And Jesus has called you. He has called you. With the passion and fervor to not just challenge, but to bring with sincerity and love, satisfaction of heart in the goodness of who God is, the right view of God. Because hear me, they're dying. You know that, right? They're dying. Paul and Barnabas are so motivated by this. They care so much that they're willing to walk probably in a limped way to new cities, I have to bring it. There are people out there who have the wrong view of God. The book of Acts does not end on Paul and Barnabas in this way. You have this right view. You've been called by Jesus Christ to the same thing. Verse 20 of Matthew 28 applies to you. Teach them. Teach them. I don't think I could say it any better than my man Spurgeon. Hear hear this. What, What can I say? Or what can we say? Here I am, send me. Who can say this? Here I am, send me. Jesus, is there not one? Most heathens perish. Uh, Must heathens perish? Must the gods of the heathens hold their thrones? Must your kingdom fail? Are there none to acknowledge you? None to maintain your righteous cause? If there are none, let us weep, each one of us, because such a calamity has fallen upon us. So this is the wrestle, right? We read the story of Paul and Barnabas, we go... Cool story, bro. <laughs> no. Like this should create whatever fervor that Paul and Barnabas have to bring the correct view of God to a people who do not have it should exist within you if you are a Christian. So let's finish out the text. This is what it says in verse 24 as they continue this pursuit. Then they passed through Poseidon and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been uh, commended to the grace of God. So they make their way back to the original Antioch for the work that they had uh, fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered in the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and there remained no little time with the disciples. Can you hear what they're celebrating? Like, oh, it's awesome that you got this. No, no, no. Let, let, let's talk about what the early church is celebrating. There were people who were lost, who had another narrative, a wrong view of God, and now they know. And now they know. And now for all of eternity, you will be able to celebrate that truth, that gospel with them. This is good news. Paul and Barnabas are doing it. Let's celebrate that. So this is where where I've got to leave you because I think there's two people in the room. I've already said it. There are a scriptural people and there are a non-scriptural people. There's two people in the room. That's it. And and if you're a non-scriptural person, right? Like maybe you consider yourself an atheist. You're working out your worldview totally fine, but hear me when I say this, you're still forced to ask hard questions. So even if at this moment you consider yourself an atheist, to just say that there is a God out there that you don't believe in, or you just don't believe in any of this, and you just casually come to that conclusion, like, tread carefully, bro. Tread carefully. That's a a big decision. Because if what is, uh, uh, if it's true, what is said by the scriptural people, that's all bad for you. But well, regardless, you, you live out of your worldview, right? You, you are to live out your worldview. You're, you're, operating in society that is driving your worldview. But then there's this other side who is, who is scriptural people. And these non-scriptural people, I think the challenge of this passage is bringing to you to go, Hey, you've got idols that you're wrestling with. You're, you're pursuing vanity, purposelessness, wrestle with that. But to the, the, the scriptural people, he's going, if that's true, why aren't you telling everyone? Why, why is this not such a big deal that you feel that the need to casually believe and hear me, I don't think there is such a thing. I don't think there's any in between here. There's no third option. You either don't believe and you're operating out of that worldview, pursuing purposelessness, or you do believe and everyone's got to know. So I'd say it like this. If you are a living, living human being, if you exist right now, you're forced to wrestle with this God thing. But if you believe in this God thing, you need to tell every human living being about him. There's no way around it. So the the grand question, and this is where I'm gonna read the last song that we're gonna sing um, to you, because if I can say to the non-Christian, you live purposelessly, what am I to say, or how am I to argue that as Christians, we have purpose, okay? And here's, here's what I would say, if you're not a believer, and if you are a Christian you haven't thought through this, here's the difference. As a Christian, I am fulfilling my purpose by glorifying God. I am fulfilling my purpose by being a nurse. I am fulfilling my purpose. But, but somebody who is not following God doesn't have a purpose to fulfill. And the difference may, may seem really lame, but, but here's what I, what, what, what I would say. The, the, the scriptural people who are purposeful, who have a purpose, okay, when it's all said and done, their works are eternal. You understand? So here's my motivation to you. The last song that we're going to sing today is what should drive us. It's what should drive us. And I've actually read this to you guys before. I think it's a great song, theologically sound. It's called, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. And if you don't know what the House of Zion is, it's where the people are gathered. There's a recognition, if nothing else, hear this, by the Apostle Paul to say, we will feast in the House of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together, we will feast and weep no more. The purpose that we have as Christians is a hope in the fact that when it's all said and done, all things will be made new, and we will be in the house of Zion, we will be gathered with one another, and we'll go, remember when? I'm like, yeah, that's good. Do you remember? Yeah, and I lost her, but here, and, and you'll be, everything will fade to the sides, everything will become strangely dim. And we will be satisfied. Our hearts will be fully satisfied in that moment. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will not be burned by the fire. He is the Lord our God. We are not consumed by the flood, upheld, protected, gathered up. In the dark of night, before the dawn, my soul be not afraid. For the promised morning, oh how long, oh God of Jacob, be my strength. Every vow we've broken and betrayed, you are the faithful one. Hear this last line. And from the garden to the grave, bind us together bring shalom. See, see, what I'm trying to tell you right now is the way we're all experiencing life is not the way that it's supposed to be. And in the purposeful worldview, the right belief of God, he's going to make it the way it's supposed to be one day. That's my hope. That's where I put all my chips. That's what we do as Christians. That's why we're on mission. That's why we continue to do what we do every single day. That's our drive. Maybe true of us as a church. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you so much first, for who you are that we 're reminded that you are a God who satisfies our heart today in our passage that you did good even to those who even right now like they have a good marriage because of your common grace they, 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 can, quit, they can get off drugs because of your common grace because you 're good and you 've able them to do that, but, but our prayer would be no matter what scenario that is that that, that we find ourselves in a place to go, though I'm able to do this, there is something behind all of this that, that I need to wrestle with. That there is a God that I need to pursue. And I would pray that we would all search for the purpose. We would stop believing the lies. That we would stop following idols and vain things, purposeless things. That we would pursue you for all that you are. The resurrected Jesus Christ who has beaten death and one day... We will find ourselves with you as we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise in the house of Zion. We're grateful for that. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding us of that. And my prayer now for those who call themselves Christians and believe that to be true is that you would motivate us. You would give us courage. You would open our eyes to see the opportunities. You would continue to poke and prod uh, the insecurities as to why we would not all be on mission. Help us. Help us teach the nations all that you have commanded the apostles. Help us. Help us feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, visit those who are in prison. Help us take care of the orphan and the widow. Help us be there for those who cannot defend themselves to fight for justice. Help us. May we fight your fight as ministers of reconciliation to bring the kingdom of God here on earth. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.